91.3 KBCS, Music and Ideas, listener-supported radio from Bellevue College. On today's Grit, racial bias and health disparities have affected communities of color for centuries in America. And the COVID pandemic has shed even more light on this issue. In February, the NAACP hosted a racial bias in healthcare webinar. You'll listen to excerpts of this event on today's show. Dr. Phyllis Gehring Anderson introduces the event. Our first speaker is Dr. Michelle Andrasic. She is Director of Social and Behavioral Sciences and Community Engagement and HIV Vaccine Trials Network. She's the Senior Staff Scientist of Vaccine and Infectious Disease Division at Fred Hutch, and she's a clinical affiliate professor in the Department of Global Health at the University of Washington. She is interested and has done research on healthcare disparities, and she's also performed some research on ethnic and racial um, bias in healthcare. So we welcome Dr. Andrezik. Group, I don't really need to lay the groundwork of why we're talking about bias, but I did want to point out four specific um, challenges uh, that we have with bias um, and why it's so important. And that is that the inequities that are experienced by Black, Indigenous, and people of color are pervasive across disease outcomes, institutions, and organizations. And there is persistent um, disparities in life expectancy for Black and African-American individuals and American Indian and Alaska Natives. After doing um, extensive research and conducting a thorough literature review, in 2003, the Institute of Medicine issued a report entitled Unequal Treatment, Confronting Racial and Ethnic Disparities in Healthcare. And one of the things that they specifically call out is bias prejudice and stereotyping as one of the main factors perpetuating some of the disparities that we see in care. In every year, the National Healthcare Quality and Disparities Report consistently shows persistent disparities for Black, African-Americans, American Indian, Alaska Natives, and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islanders. So those three groups have consistent and persistent disparities. And then there are disparities experienced by our Latino, Latina, Hispanic brothers and sisters, as well as individuals across the Asian diaspora. So I think it's really critical to understand that we have longstanding and persistent disparities that have been called out. And so I wanna really talk about the roots of those disparities. And I think we, I'm gonna first focus on the history of black bodies in medicine. And then I'm gonna talk about race-based science, which I think are two of the main drivers of some of the biases that we see in healthcare today. So, with regard to the history of uh, Black bodies, specifically in medicine, uh, physicians were, um, you know, some of the earliest physicians on this continent, in this country, uh, inspected the bodies of enslaved individuals in the Middle Passage to ensure the safe transit of human cargo. Uh, these same physicians inspected the bodies of enslaved individuals before signing certificates of soundness for buyers and sellers. And by 19 or by 1858, we see in medical journals that one of the professional competencies needed by Southern doctors was the ability to accurately determine the market value of black bodies. This was a key professional competence. And we also see that after death, black bodies are used as teaching materials in white medical schools um, uh, without any um, uh, you know, informed consent or um, any uh, request 
for the utilization of those bodies in that medical practice. And I think it's also important to look at the roots of gynecology. Black women were seen as especially capable of both childbearing and field labor. Uh, Southern laws forced enslaved Black women to bear children who would build capital for their enslavers. And this became really critical in, you know, after the U.S. and Great Britain banned the transatlantic slave trade, which was in 1807-1808. So we see sort of increased attention by white physicians to enslaved women's reproductive lives. And it's important to note that at that, in that period of time, an estimated 50% of enslaved infants were stillborn or died in the first year. And in the absence of knowledge of why this was happening, we see the beginning of this discourse of blaming um, the midwives and the mothers for the deaths of these children, when likely these deaths were the result of poor nutrition and hard labor. And gynecology, the field of gynecology, many of the field's pioneering surgical techniques were developed on the bodies of enslaved women who were experimented on. Uh, early and repeated um, surgeries on black bodies led to um, some of what we know about cesarean sections uh, today. So it's, we have this history of black bodies being abused in the medical industry. And then we fast forward to today, uh, infant death rates and maternal death rates in this country do not mirror what we see in other resource rich countries. Currently, the, um, although death rates overall have plummeted since the 19th century, the disparities between black and white deaths are incredibly noteworthy. And I think, you know, it's um, important to also note that if you read uh, much of the medical literature, um, you sort of see a change about 10 years ago, but there was still this underlying sort of blaming the mother or um, for infant death. So this discourse where um, uh, the mother's health or the mother's use of substances or whatever the case That's may true. be uh, was implicated in these deaths. And what we're finding more and more uh, and one of the leaders of this is Geronimus down at the University of North Carolina, is that accumulation of stress and bias may impact uh, these disparities for Black women and the death of infants and maternal deaths um, during pregnancy. So I also wanna talk about the history of um, race-based science in this country. Uh, and this paradox begins um, in the early 1800s, um, where we begin to see sort of the science as a justification of um, uh, extreme labor conditions and inhumane labor conditions. So we begin to see physicians writing um, about how by the very nature of their constitution, um, African-Americans or black people are protected from harsh working conditions. And then by the um, mid 1850s, we begin to see physicians in the North and the South uh, publishing articles justifying denial of rest, shade, fluids, healthcare, because of different anatomical construction and um, which is not supported by any data. Also claims that um, African-Americans uh, operated under different physiological laws from white men. So heat, sun exposure were not an issue. And you see journal articles stating that because of different eyes, 
thicker skulls, the constitution of Black people's hair, that African-Americans have less sensitivity to pain than whites. And so this discourse is really used to prove that um, Black people are organically constituted for agricultural labor in um, warmer climates. So, and, and um, some of the physicians go so far as to describe African-Americans as strong animal machines. Again, um, using non-data-driven um, sort of uh, guesses to um, sort of underscore the, um, the strength and the uh, wherewithal of Black people and, it, and basically justifying the fact that they can work long hours, they can work hard with little nutrition and little hydration. And so by the early 1900s, we start seeing this race-based science uh, not only um, utilized to justify harsh labor treatments of black individuals, but we begin to see it utilized to justify um, uh, stereotyping and discrimination of other racial groups. And in 1911 or the early 1900s, we begin to see increased migration of Asians, which raised alarm for a lot of people. And so again, we see these journal articles and writings that the aptitude of the Chinese to be able to work in a wide range of climatic conditions by the very nature of their race um, makes them a threat to the US worker. So um, this really fuels what came to be known as the yellow Peril, one of the first uh, huge xenophobic movements in the United States. And throughout the early 1900s, the, this rationale was used to impose restrictions on Japanese and Chinese immigrants. Um, and, um, and then they began to focus these same arguments on um, Mexican-Americans. Um, in the early 1900s, uh, a study that was um, supported by the federal government found that Mexicans work well and are contented in the desert where Europeans either become dissatisfied or prove unable to withstand the climate. And so by um, the end of World War One, we begin to see, you know, widespread labor shortages, which are drawing um, many Mexican Americans north, many African Americans north to sort of fill these jobs. Um, and what we see is that management channels many of these people of color into hot jobs. So in Detroit. They're in the foundry departments of auto plants in Chicago and other steel making cities. They're largely seen in the Coke ovens and blast furnaces. And so again, um, we see um, writings and um, discourse about how um, these racial groups are adaptable to various types of hot work by the very nature of their race. And, um, you know, this continues to drive the um, employment opportunities for people of color. Um, and then we start to see a little bit of a shift, you know, the, and this shift, not surprisingly, comes during the Great Depression. So what happens during the Great Depression? There is massive job loss across the United States and jobs that were once seen as undesirable are now the jobs that are available. 
So we begin to see a change in the discourse of race-based science. And we start to see, for example, in 1933, uh, John Talbot published an article in the American Journal of Tropical Medicine proclaiming that they had discovered no cases of heat stroke or heat exhaustion among seasoned white workers. So they say that this leads them to believe that white and white workers, as well as other people of color, have at least the normal degree of adaptability to heat. So again, we see the shift in discourse that's driven by an economic need. And, and um, you know, it's interesting to note that the shift then effectively blocks black and brown people from some of these jobs. And your organization, the NAACP, had to step in um, in public works, the most notably the construction of the Hoover Dam, which was really driven by the need to create jobs. Those jobs were not open to black and brown people until the NAACP stepped in and made sure that there were jobs available to black and brown people. And I think it's worth noting that the large majority of those jobs were in the uh, hot, the hardest manual labor positions in building the Hoover Dam, as well as other public works. So we then see throughout history, whether you look at the Tuskegee study, uh, what happened to the Havasu Native community, egregious historical research um, uh, conduct in unethical ways. And this, again, is driven by race-based theories with regard to um, how people of color can or cannot be treated. And I think it's really critical to note that, you know, in 2008, uh, a national study still found that most of the women who are women of color working in some of the hottest conditions in this country, namely uh, commercial laundries, are uh, BIPOC individuals. And then in 2016, there was a survey of residents and college students and uh, white um, general people making up the general public and about 50% of those white medical students and residents believe that African-Americans feel less pain and have thicker skin than whites. And I think this is critical to note because we see huge disparities along racial lines and pain treatment recommendations. And also in 2018, the Federal Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, petitioned the federal government to set protective heat standards for the nation's workforce working in agricultural and other very heat-intensive jobs, largely comprised of BIPOC individuals because of the threat of climate change and the elevated heat-related mortality that we see in um, individuals in these um, working in these conditions. So I think it's clear that this um, history of bias has really played out in stark ways in our uh, in patient provider relationships and some provider bias. And in there's a wealth of literature, uh, around provider bias. And what we know to be true is that provider levels of bias are at the same level as the general public. So if you're looking at biases in the general public as measured by the implicit associations test, largely, you see that about 70% of individuals have an anti-Black bias. And we see 
that individual or that providers who have a stronger bias demonstrate poor patient provider communication and interactions. Higher bias is also associated with lower quality of care and implicit attitudes, uh, particularly negative attitudes towards BIPOC individuals are very much related to patient provider interactions and health outcomes, more so than treatment processes. So I think that that's a critical thing to note. Um, and I just wanted to give you some examples of the things that come up in literature that are um, associated with um, provider bias. So the disparities we see in being recommended treatment, uh, the expectations of how your therapeutic bond will go, adherence to treatment um, and medications, pain management, uh, prophylactic treatment, so whether or not uh, you're referred for x-rays and evaluations, and also um, bias is implicated in whether or not a patient is seen as uncooperative, whether they are seen as engaging in um, uh, riskier behavior, and whether they're seen as compliant or not. And finally, I just want to state that this bias isn't um, just relegated to um, medical care and health care. We see economic and structural biases impacting African-Americans. And if any of these African-Americans have other devalued identities, sexual minority identity, uh, you know, female identity, what we see is, you know, an exacerbation of these biases, the more uh, devalued identities individuals have. You're tuned to The Grit on 91.3 KBCS Community Radio. Our final speaker will be Dr. Estelle Williams, uh, who is a general surgeon in the Division of Emergency General Surgery at the University of Washington Medical Center. She's the assistant professor in general surgery at the UW School of Medicine, but she is very proud of this program that she's the executive director for, and that's Doctor of the Day, which gives students of color an opportunity to learn more about careers in medicine. Thank you. I think Dr. Um, Andrasic set a wonderful foundation with um, understanding history and what was the societal historical factors that created the inequities that we see and continue to see here. I want us to really be able to explore how this historical piece that Dr. Andrasic um, spelled out so beautifully impacts medicine how it set the foundation for the way in which health and medicine operates as a systemic institution that perpetuates institutionalized racism and systemic racism against people of color, black people in particular. And then what actions have been taken and continue to be taken in order to combat this and something that we can all bring forward as a charge. Recognize so recognizing history, you know, as Dr. Andrasik did a wonderful job of reflecting, it does begin with slavery and how we were treated since slavery was abolished outside of the carceral system, of course, here in the US. You know, following the Great Migration and Reconstruction, African-Americans suffered disproportionately higher rates of infant and maternal mortality, disease, and malnutrition. But the crux of that is that hospitals were segregated by race and absent altogether from Black neighborhoods and rural areas. So organizations like the Urban League, founded in 1918, launched campaigns for public health education and medical services in the African-American communities. When white supremacy brought reconstruction to a violent and premature end, medicine evolved along these same dividing lines of white citizens and black outcasts. America developed particular private decentralized job pension-based healthcare infrastructure that was only fit for a modernizing society that could not abide Black citizens in sharing in those societal benefits. We were essentially locked out of that job pension-based healthcare infrastructure. And thus we begin the segregated inequal care that was the foundation of our healthcare system and structure. One where Black workers had often been carved out of the gains of labor entirely. 
So as industrial, industrialized nations across the world developed naturalized healthcare, America insisted on largely expanding the existing segregated system of local private providers and religious-based charity care. In essence, the United States private-based healthcare system exists at least in part because of the country's commitment to maintaining racial hierarchies. The results were deep racial disparities in almost every major disease and enduring gaps in lifespans and mortality and the creation of an entirely separate medical and public health infrastructures. So what does this mean for our communities? Well, since most hospitals do not allow African-American physicians to practice in them, and many refuse to treat black patients, starting in the late 19th century, African-American physicians and community members founded hundreds of black community hospitals across the nation, including Chicago's Provident Hospital and Training School in 1891. In the early 20th century, rapid industrialization and new ways of immigration with growing labor unrest made the health of workers and the poor a matter of national concern. So working people protested these dangerous and unhealthy conditions, started worker-owned clinics and hospitals and advocated for health insurance coverage. African-Americans excluded from mainstream medical care also created their own healthcare institutions in the face of segregation. But progress and any progress achieved by the resilience of enslaved people in this country was short-lived. In 1910, the Carnegie Foundation commissioned Abraham Flexner to study medical education in the United States and Canada. As many as 14 black medical schools existed in the late 19th century. In his report, Flexner wrote that African-American physicians should be trained, quote unquote, in hygiene rather than surgery and should primarily serve as, quote unquote, sanitarians whose purpose was protecting whites from common diseases like tuberculosis. The force of this report was evident in the closing of all black medical schools with the survival of two, Howard and Meharry. The re recommendation for this survival was put in context with further analysis of Flexner's words when he stated, the Negro must be educated not only for his sake, but for ours. And tens of millions of them live in close contact with 60 million whites. The impact of this report reverberated for over a half a century. In the years following the report, the number of black physicians decreased while the number of white physicians increased. It was not until 1966 that another black medical school was founded, the Charles Drew Medical School, established in, 19, in, in 1966 in Los Angeles, and later Morehouse Medical College in Atlanta. These schools have maintained their academic standards, but face some of the same pressures that led to the closure of earlier black medical institutions of lack of funding, lower endowments than predominantly white institutions, despite cries for increasing diversity in medicine, these schools educating more than 80% of US black physicians, we still continue to underfund them. So where's the money at and does it match? Does the actions match these words? Nonetheless, despite all of these obstacles, activists have helped push for health programs and called attention to the disparities in medical care. In 1960s, civil rights activists, senior citizens advocated for Medicare and Medicaid. These are the first national health programs in the United States and actually funds our, our residency programs in the US. Following the end of legal segregation by race, citizens groups began targeting continuing racial and economic inequities in health. Radical social movements even went further in defining community-based healthcare as an essential component of their visions for a new society. The Medical Committee for Civil Rights participated in the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom in 1963. Many physicians, nurses, medical students worked in the civil rights movement. They marched against segregation, treated people injured in protests and helped set up community clinics in both the North and the South. Poverty advocates insisted that poor people and Medicaid recipients be treated with dignity and respect by the medical system. Does this not sound familiar even today? In 1970, members of the National Welfare Rights Organizations picked a meeting of the American Hospital Association demanding that hospitals receiving federal funding fulfill their obligations to accept patients regardless of income. I wanna highlight one such activist, Dr. Leonidas Berry. His career spanned most of the 20th century and it was so accomplished it almost defies description. He called himself a multi-dimensional doctor. Those dimensions included physician, medical device inventor, teacher, pioneer in addiction treatment, civil rights activist, church leader, author, and even historian. 
his scientific and professional achievements, as well as his lifelong fight against racial discrimination in medicine, are vividly documented in his papers that are held at the National Library of Medicine. He became dedicated to fighting against racial discrimination in medicine. It was the segregation, discrimination, and poverty that led to disproportionately high rates of sickness and mortality among African-American population. These social determinants of health, these ethical and moral issues where we allow other human beings to not receive access to the same level and the same dream of achieving health and justice for all. Civil rights groups, churches, community organizations fought these conditions through educational initiatives such as the National Negro Health Week that ran between 1914 and 1951, infant health stations, nutritional programs to help curb maternal and infant mortality, women's clubs sponsored visiting nurses associations that provided communities with home nursing services, preventative and prenatal care, health education. After World War II, the medical civil rights movement increased focusing on ending segregation in the mainstream healthcare system. The NMA, Organization of Black Physicians, protested the pro-segregation provisions of the 1948 Hill-Burton Hospitals Survey and Construction Act and demanded an end to racial discrimination by the American Medical Association, which permitted all white local chapters. It was in the 1950s that Dr. Berry exposed hospitals' widespread exclusion of black physicians and fought to bring hospital facilities to the segregated South and particularly South Side of Chicago where he worked. He served as president of the NMA. And as president, he pushed the AMA to end its lifelong segregation. It was through his work through the Medical Committee for Civil Rights that he continued to push for and advocate for communities of color. And while minority and low-income Americans have organized to bring quality care to their communities for over a century, responding to neglect from government and private providers, community members are the ones who have created their own public health campaigns, hospitals, clinics, and health centers. How more poignant is that than in our own local Carolyn Downs Family Medicine Center, founded in 1968 by community activists, committed to the idea that healthcare is a right for all people. Medical clinic services were originally part of a broad spectrum of medical services that were overseen and developed by the Seattle Black Panther Party. In 1978, the original Black Panther medical program became this freestanding community clinic and was renamed after one of the clinic's founders, Carolyn Downs. It was because of the work of this community organizing effort that brought care to the community. It is the community that has cared for itself when medicine has routinely shut out and not included communities of color as a priority because that is the foundation upon which medicine has been built and what must be combated when we think about the, dis the bias and disparities that exist. This is what we talk about when we talk about systemic racism, institutionalized racism, and the things that we must continue to combat. But again, the struggle continues. We see this even today with Dr. Ben Danielson stepping down from his post with Odessa Brown, the children's clinic that shares the same building as Carolyn Downs. Knowing the history of Odessa Brown, who was born in Arkansas in 1920, during the Great Depression, Odessa moved to Chicago and experienced some health problems, but she had difficulty obtaining the care she needed. At one visit to a Chicago area hospital, she was turned away and denied care. She reportedly said to the staff, I am black and poor, but I will leave in peace so that I can keep my dignity. It was years later in the height of the civil rights area when she was raising four children in Seattle that she became a community organizer and she fought to bring quality healthcare with dignity to children in the central district through a federally funded effort to solve inner city problems by building model neighborhoods. She died of leukemia at the age of 49. But how is it then that all these years later in our 21st century that the black medical director has to step down from this community led effort that has joined with our local health system because of the racism that is steeped within our medical system. It is the systemic institutional racism that is at the core of the founding of this nation and society and thus 
medicine because it does not exist as a, in a silo. Medicine provided the initial scientific basis for which society then built its own racial segregation policies and procedures and everything that it stands for. What we strive for is health equity, attainment at the highest level of health for all people and achieving health equity requires valuing everyone equally with focused and ongoing societal efforts to address avoidable inequities, historical and contemporary injustices, and the elimination of health and healthcare disparities. I end with this thought. In the US, the clearest expression of the role of advocate is the AMA's Declaration of Professional Responsibility, Medicine's Contract with Humanity, which contains as item number eight, advocate for social, economic, educational, and political changes that, that ameliorate suffering and contribute to human well-being. Advocacy for patients is generally considered an appropriate role for physicians by physicians. But advocacy for social, economic, educational, and political change is far less widely accepted. These are the things that we must and should as physicians and as community organizations and community members have led the charge, but medicine has been slow to follow, to engage in activism. We must begin to change the system. The term racism is rarely used in medical literature. Most physicians are not explicitly racist and are committed to treating all patients equally. However, they operate in an inherently racist system. Structural racism is insidious and a large and growing body of literature documents disparate outcomes for different races, despite the best efforts of individual healthcare professionals. So if we aim to curtail systematic violence and premature deaths, clinicians and researchers will have to take an active role in addressing the root causes. And the community has been the one leading that effort and teaching us, but we must work together. Thus we have work within these systems to dismantle racism, the barriers it creates in advancing diversity within our institutions and a truly equal health for all. Thank you. This is The Grit on 91.3 KBCS, Music and Ideas. I'm Yuko Kadama. I'd like to thank our speakers for their presentations, but we have a panel that's gonna to respond to what they heard. I'd like to thank our speakers for their presentations, but we have a panel that's gonna to respond to what they heard. We want them to give them their views or their response to what they heard and what they feel we can do individually or corporately to address this ethnic bias in healthcare. Now that's a nice political way of saying racism in healthcare for people of color, for people with brown skin. What can we do about it? Now our panel is uh, Ms. Lou Rochelle Brim Atkins, who owns a consulting firm uh, where she has been executive coach, facilitator, educator, and trainer for more than 30 years. She served profit and nonprofit institutions um, in organizing um, racial equity programs and um, information lectures, leading changes in those organizations. And then we have Ms. Dolores Mack, who is a personal services supervisor for the Seattle King County Public Health Department, where she's on a mobile vaccination team. So she's out in the community. So she hears from the community. She sees the community. We start with Ms. Lou Rochelle Brent Atkins. Good morning. I am so pleased to have been invited to participate in this panel. I've learned so much and uh, the presenters have triggered a lot of memories for me, some of which I will share with you, some of which are fairly painful, but I think we learn by sharing each other's stories. Um, I'm reminded of a poem that I heard once that said, I look for a place, my brother, where the white shadow of racism does not fall. There is no such place, my sister, no such place at all. And that's the essence of racism in this country that so many people try to deny that it exists, but we've heard so many examples here today. 
my own background, I grew up in a small town in Texas, Northeast Texas, um, that was segregated, where everything screamed that we were less than, that we did not deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. And part of that was in the hospitals, where we sat in a tiny waiting room, but could look down the hallway and see a spacious waiting room for white people that had plants and television and magazines. And that scream that we did not deserve the kind of medical care that other people were entitled to. I grew up with two brothers. And, and so here in this presentation today reminds me of that. One of my brothers was 18 months older than I, he has now passed on. But my brother was born in a small town in Louisiana and his physician was a German American right after World War II. And this doctor deliberately dropped my brother at birth and caused brain damage. And my brother suffered all of his life, just an amazing human being. But this doctor made a decision to drop him at birth. My mother was told later that he happy he was alive because this man usually killed all of the black boy babies. My mother made the, the decision to go to back to Texas to her hometown for my birth because she could go to a black owned hospital where I was delivered by my cousin who was a physician. So I have internal stuff that goes back fairly, well, all my life that says, do not trust the medical system. And you know, you have to work with that because if you have something that says don't trust and you say, but you need medical care, you, you still have to work with yourself to, to sort of go through that. I, I was thinking about Dr. Andrasik's comment about Black people supposedly work better in the heat. Uh, my younger brother had a best friend when he was growing up. And when he became an adult, he was sent, he worked at a, a steel company and he was sent to work in the hottest part of, and he kept complaining that it was too hot and they ignored him. So I'm listening to this today saying, the belief was that we could work better in the heat. He dropped dead from exhaustion and heat in this plant. You can see how some of us have some hesitation when it's time to re rely on the American medical system. Uh, when I was a student at the University of Texas and I was getting my exam, uh, the, the physician said to me, because I have fallen arches. And she said, she's got flat feet, but I haven't seen one yet that didn't. And I said, one what? And she said, one nigra. And I've never forgotten that. And it's been a while since I was at the University of Texas. Um, these encounters that we get just reinforce the kinds of things that we've heard today. Uh, I know so many people, Black people, who have been sent home to die and live 15 or 20 years beyond that prognosis. Um, I think about times when I was in Rochester, New York, and, and volunteered to do some work in community medicine. So our focus was sickle cell anemia and lead poisoning, two situations that the medical schools were not preparing physicians to deal with. So we had to actually do education sessions for physicians because sickle cell was not important enough a medical issue for them to talk about that in medical school, to teach about that in medical school. One of my mentors there was Dr. David Satcher who became my friend and who also became the director of the Charles Drew Medical Center that you mentioned a minute ago and eventually became the Surgeon General of the United States. But he recognized that people were not being trained to deal with problems that pertain to our communities. Um, so uh, there's individual racism that impacted my whole family. 
There's institutional racism that we see, our systemic racism that we see in hospitals, and there's structural racism that is in every institution in the United States of America. I have, uh, I heard Dr. Andrasik say that provider levels of bias are the same levels as the general public. And as a person who goes to work every day to work in organizations to combat racism, let me tell you, we're in trouble. I believe that that is true, Dr. Andrasik. And I get to hear it up close and personal, things that people say that are direct and hurtful and offensive in the work that I do. And if you think about the medical professionals have that same level of bias, we are in deep trouble. Um, so I'll, I'll just say what I take away from this is that we have to advocate for ourselves. We have to do our own research. We have to, I have a brother here in town, Dr. Horn. When I go to a doctor, I call him and check it out again. We have to advocate for ourselves. Uh, my, I take friends with me when I have a major medical procedure. Alfreda's on this call now. She's driven me, take notes because you don't know what you're gonna if you're in a stressful medical situation. Somebody needs to be there to ask the questions that you don't have the coherence to ask. And someone needs to be there to say, well, what about this? And let me say that. Um, take someone with you. Don't believe every prognosis that a physician gives you. I know so many people who've lived, outlived the doctors who predicted their demise. And Dr. Ingman talked about the instance you know, black people are some resilient people and you can't write us off as easily as you might think you could. So don't believe, don't believe it just because a medical professional tells you that. Um, I, I would encourage you to support each other. I was on a call last night with a woman who was given a, a six month prognosis 15 years ago, and she did a lot of research on her own and has a regimen that is more naturopathic than others that might come up for you. So I just, we have to do our work, we have to advocate for ourselves, and we have to support each other. Thank you so much for letting me have a little bit of time today. Thank you. Uh, my name is Dolores Mack. I am a registered nurse. I currently work for the Seattle and King County Public Health Department as an assistant personal health services supervisor, and that is a very long title for an assistant nurse manager. I come from a 12 and a half year background working in the healthcare setting. I've had the pleasure of attending nursing school at a his, uh, HBCU, Hampton University, and I've also had the pleasure of receiving my first degree in nutritional sciences at Louisiana State University, which is my home state. I'm currently a graduate student in the Masters of Public Health program at the University of Washington online. I'm really excited about that. I humbly say that I am not an expert. However, I do have quite a few life experiences um, in regards to racial biases, especially in the healthcare community. And I really appreciated all of the presentations uh, that were provided today. I really say thank you. And there are a couple of key points that um, stuck with me. I remember seeing in the first presentation in 2016, basically saying that the issue of racial biases still exists. And what I'm finding, especially being in my um, graduate program at U, uh, University of Washington and learning about healthcare disparities is the conversation continues to occur in regards to racial biases. We identify it, we understand the work that needs to be done to try to rectify it and Yet here we are in 2021, we still have the issue. And for me, I take that really personal because I, I love patient care. I love healthcare. I love being um, a public health nurse. But what I'm really finding is there's a very limited representation of us. 
I really find there's a very limited representation of African and African-Americans within, especially I could speak for nursing. I, I think about the meetings that I, as an assistant nurse supervisor, sit in and the conversations that we are having. I work with the county's COVID pandemic relief, and I'm currently working with the mobile vaccination team, which is newly piloted to go into adult family homes to provide the Moderna vaccination. And I look at my team members and I think about the meetings that I'm in, and I find myself being the only one that looks like me. And representation is extremely important, especially when you're going inside the homes of your community. Our community is very diverse. However, the providers that are giving the assistance is not diverse. I know there's efforts that we're trying to do, especially in our hiring process, but I constantly find that we are not necessarily hiring nurses that represent the, the communities that we are serving. I applaud the county because I love working for the county because we really focus in on helping those in vulnerable populations, the homeless populations, um, uh, the elderly, those who are um, suffering from mental and behavioral health, those who are using substance abuse disorders. We service the population that most times are not able to get the quality healthcare that they need from other organizations. However, like I said, I believe representation is very important. And I look at nursing schools and the difficulty people have getting into nursing schools and the low numbers of African-American Amer students that are actually admitted into nursing programs. I believe it was Dr. Uh, Ingben that mentioned in one of his PowerPoints, the low numbers of African and African-American physicians. I mean, that is very common across all health systems, be it registered nurses, physicians, physician assistants, nurse practitioners. We're really not seeing a, a steady increase in the numbers of providers that represent the, the community they're serving. And I feel like that also too plays into the role of racial biases. There is something to be said for someone to, when you go into your appointment and you can culture connect with someone. Not to say that you cannot connect with the physician who is not of your same race and or nationality, but there is something about a cultural connection and a feeling of being heard, a feeling of being understood, and also a feeling of being listened to. And I truly believe that that is one of my goals in um, public health, not only just as a nurse, but as a person who cares about the people in my community. Um, I know Shamari said a, a great point that is not to say that any other provider of any other race can't provide and is not trying to provide the great quality care that they set out to do. But like I said, there is something to be said for representation. So once again, I thank you all for your presentation. I think it truly highlighted where we are, um, but we also, it highlights where <laughs> we still need to go. I came across a quote that I really um, enjoyed from Miss Stacy Abrams, and I'll read it to you. And it says, remember this in the darkest moments when the work doesn't seem worth it and change seems so, and change seems just out of reach. Out of our willingness to push through comes a tremendous power, use it. Sometimes it may seem that racial disparities and racial injustices just, are we ever going to solve it in our time? Maybe, maybe not, but I believe that the work that we do pushes through and I believe that the work that we do definitely helps the generation before. I look and see where I am right now and I know that my ancestors and my elders went through a whole lot more than what I've gone through in my time. So I, keep, I wanna keep everyone encouraged to keep pushing through and thank you guys so much for the opportunity. That was a racial bias in healthcare webinar from February. The event was hosted by Dr. Phyllis Gehring Anderson. For more KBCS stories and to support our work with a donation, you can visit kbcs.fm.